Our scripture this morning is 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 11 through 14. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We're going to focus in on just one verse. That's verse 14. Maybe you're familiar with it. I grew up in the church and heard this uh, verse quite often. And it's a, it's a great verse for us to look at this weekend. God's amazing promises. We're wrapping up this teaching series this weekend. Heading into a brand new teaching series next weekend. We're going to look through the book of Jonah. Old Testament book. Four chapters. Four, four weeks. So you can start reading that ahead of time. And as we wrap up this weekend, God's amazing promises for healing our nation. That's the topic. Also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube live right now. Thank you for joining us. Uh, grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along. We are very blessed in so many ways as a nation and yet at the same time we are we're very broken in so many ways as a nation and in desperate need of healing. I think everybody would agree with that. Amen. Our nation is deeply divided politically, horribly in debt, economically troubled with high inflation. Most of us are all experiencing that. Our border is broken, our public schools and education need transformation, homelessness and crime is rising, and opioid overdoses are epidemic, and the list goes on. And the list goes on. There's much more that we could say. But all of these problems are ultimately symptoms of our deep spiritual issues. I mean, we tend to focus in on the symptoms. This is all symptomatic <laughs> of something much deeper. You guys know that. If you understand what the Bible teaches, this is all symptomatic of, of, of deep spiritual issues. So as a nation, our spiritual complacency has led to compromise and we are now experiencing the consequences. We desperately need a covenant spiritual renewal, a revival, an awakening. Yes. That's what we need more than anything in our nation. Now you notice I alliterated with C words here. Complacency, compromise, consequences, we need a covenant, covenant renewal, revival. That's what we need. By the way, that's the pattern when you read it in the Old Testament book of Judges. That's the pattern you see the nation of Israel consistently on. They start with a covenant relationship with God and it goes to covenant, this deep intimacy with God, to complacency. And then complacency leads to compromise Compromise leads to consequences. And then they would cycle back around to a covenant relationship. I've seen that same pattern happen not only in churches and in the church, but also in families. But also I've seen that in our nation. 
That's what's happening in our nation. In fact, if you're familiar with the very last verse in the book of Judges summarizes the whole book. Anybody familiar with the last verse of Judges? It goes like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sound familiar? So when we don't have good leaders, when we don't have good laws, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's where we're headed as a nation. And so it's important to keep that in mind. Now, Proverbs 4, 18 and 19, Proverbs are probability, kind of defines how life typically works. But I think these verses actually are speaking really prophetically, even maybe for our times. And now listen to what it says here. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. That should be your life and my life. That the darker it gets, the brighter we should shine. If we're truly walking with Christ, I actually believe, and I'm hoping it happens before I exit this planet Earth, but I'm, I'm believing and praying for the biggest revival we've ever seen in the history of, desert, of, of the United States. I'm praying for that. I pray for that regularly. I, I would invite you to pray for that too. But if the revival never hits, you can have a personal revival. We talked about that last weekend. And this is what it should be. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. Light of dawn, barely seeing the light as it's coming up, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Is that your life? If you're walking with Christ, that should be your life. Now notice the contrast here. It says, verse 19, Proverbs 4, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Hello? I mean, isn't that our, our country in many ways? Our leadership, not knowing what the problem is, making more problems? It's insane. That's darkness. That's the darkness all around us. And so I believe, I believe this is what's happening. I think it's going to get darker and darker, but we as God's people should be getting brighter and brighter. And as the darkness creeps in, God's going to pour his spirit upon his people. And I believe we're going to see a revival here in our nation unlike ever before. I want to be a part of that. I mean, I want to be riding that wave. I, I believe that's what God wants for us. Now, it's interesting in the Olivet Discourse, uh, what Jesus said prophetically in Jesus' prophecy of end times, it's found in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Listen to what he says here. He says, because lawlessness will be increased, talking about end times, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So he's giving us a warning here. Life is going to get really, really hard. It's going to get dark here, but you can't let your heart grow cold. And then he goes on, he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end is the one that does not let their heart grow cold because of the lawlessness increasing all around them. So it's critical that you keep your heart from being cold. And you stay close to Jesus. You fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. And you stay focused on him. Now, what's fascinating about this text, and like I said, it was a verse that I grew up hearing quite often. And if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. 
See, I believe that's a verse not just for national healing, it's certainly for the nation of Israel, but it's a, it's a word from the Lord to us for our national healing, but I think you can also apply it to your own personal healing. And I, I believe this is really the path to experience a personal revival in your own life. We talked about that last week. Now, let me give you a little bit of the background of this text. We read a few verses before this verse. It is the dedication of the temple of the Lord. When Solomon finishes praying, fire comes down from heaven, burns up the sacrifices, and the Lord's glory fills the temple. The Lord appears to Solomon, reassuring him that his prayer has been heard, but adds a word of caution. Obedience brings blessing. But disobedience will bring discipline. In other words, if you let complacency and compromise come in, you're going to experience the consequences. That's, that's basically what he's saying. Now, he's not saying that because he hates us, but he says that because he loves us and wants us uh, to be blessed even more by what he wants to do in our lives. And so, I believe here that national healing happens when God's people lead by example. And I think that's what he's really wanting us to understand more than anything. And so before we dive into this text, unpack these notes, would you bow your heads with me once again? Let's pray. I'd like to pray Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search us, O God. I know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous, sinful way in us. And lead us in the way everlasting. Father, we pray that you would stoke the fires of our hearts for you with your boundless and satisfying love for us. May we, your people, lead by example as you work in us and through our lives to bring healing to our nation. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said... Amen. So national healing happens when God's people lead by example. And so what you have in this text, verse 14, and it's pretty simple to follow the, the path. Uh, so it starts with the path for healing our nation, and then God gives us a promise. So you got, you've got steps in the path, kind of four steps for that path, but there's something that precedes those four steps that's important to keep in mind. And then he gives us the promise. So with a lot of promises in the Bible, there's always a premise before the promise. What's the premise before the promise? We'll look at that first. So the path for healing our nation. Now it's so easy to jump on the, on the path where it says, if we'll humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, turn from our wicked ways, don't jump ahead because there's something really critical that, that's in that text before that, those steps. And here's what it is. Realize who we are. That's your first fill in the blank. So the path for healing our nation. We've got to realize who we are. Look at verse 14a. If my people who are called by my name. That is loaded. <laughs> that is an amazing text that precedes what we need to do. You'll never be able to pull off what you need to do as far as repentance is concerned if you don't understand, if you don't realize who, who we are. Now notice he calls us my people. He says my people. We're his people by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now what does that mean? If my people, my people, so here's, here's what needs to come to mind, is that you and I, we were created by God. Which means your ultimate meaning, hope, and happiness comes from him. You can't just make that up and try to find it somewhere in creation. It comes from the creator. 
And so uh, that's the first thing. That's the first thing. That he, he really pretty much owns you. You belong to him just for the fact that he created you. But something went down in the third chapter of Genesis that, yeah, we belong to God, but we believed the lie of the enemy that if I obey God, I'm not going to be happy. That's the lie of the enemy. So we turned away from God, and that spiritual alienation created psychological alienation and then social alienation, all kinds of problems in our lives. And yet God in his grace and mercy sent his son on a rescue mission to reconcile us back to himself. So the gospel, the basic gospel message, you need to know this. You need to, it's got to be more than just something you can articulate. You've got to live it out. You've got to experience it deep in your heart because I'm telling you it will transform your life. So the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. So we belong to him not only because he's created us, but he has redeemed us. He's reconciled us back to himself. So that's when he says, my people called. What does that mean? Well, we responded to the invitation to know God and make him, make him known. Have you responded to the invitation? How do you do that? You acknowledge your sin that separates you from God. You believe that Christ died in your place for your sins and you confess him as Savior and Lord. You give your life to him. You begin to live your life for him. Called, my people called by my name. What does that mean? By his name. And the Bible refers to a person's name as referring to their character. So it's not based on my character. I didn't earn my right to, to have a, a, a right standing with God. It's not based on me. It's not based on who I am and what I've done. He saved us based on who he is and what he's done for us. Based on his name. If my people who are called by my name. So here's a couple fill in the blanks. A couple more here. So salvation is not achieved, but received. It's not achieved, but received. Now listen to me. This is what separates Christianity from every other major cult and religion in our world today. Every other religion. Study them out for yourself. Take a world religions class. And you're going to see a stark difference between all the religions of our world, which is about achieving through a code of ethics, through a set of rules, through the Ten Commandments, whatever it is, the good are in, the bad are out. Not for Christianity. It's actually the humble are in, the proud are out. All you need is need. And you enter into it and you receive it. It's absolutely spectacular. When this landed on me a number of years ago, oh my goodness, I was, I was overwhelmed with the reality of that. I was overwhelmed with the reality of, of the fact that I could enter into a personal relationship with God, not based on, you know, who I am and what I do, but based on who he is and what he's done for me. And it was a gift from God. I could experience all that he, he has for me. In fact, what we want to do as Christians, you need to learn to begin to really uh, share the gospel with others in such a way that they wished that it was true and then show them that it is true. It's absolutely amazing. And a lot of times people, they kind of rush through it. But when you realize it, it's overwhelming. You go, what? Yeah, I have access into the throne room of God. Not based on my merits, but based on the merits of Christ Jesus. Not based on my record, based on his record. That's the idea. Salvation 
is not achieved but received. So listen, a lot of times people, when they think we're inviting them into a relationship or we're inviting them to Christianity or we're sharing the gospel with them, the default mode in most people's lives is they think it's a list of rules to endure. No, 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 no. Listen, it's a love relationship to enjoy. You enter into a relationship with him. So, so religion says, obey God, get your act together, live by the rules, and then God will accept you and bless you. That's religion. Christianity says, I'm accepted, I'm blessed through Jesus Christ, therefore I want to obey. I want to live for his glory. Just makes sense. And, and because you want to honor him. Don't flip that. Here's the next thing. So here's your next couple fill in the blanks. We live, work, serve not for, but from our identity. So as Christians, we have everything we need in God through Christ Jesus. First Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race. Listen to these descriptive words. They're just packed full of, of implications and meaning for you and I. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so... Romans 2, 4, it, said, it says this, it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Because the next thing we're going to look, look at is repentance. Repent of where we are. We're not going to get there yet, but let me just talk about this. Uh, because we're realizing who we are. Because you're not going to be able to repent of where we are if you don't realize who we are. And so this idea of the goodness of God leads us to repentance. It tells us in Romans 5, 8, it says that, that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now think about this. When he says the goodness of God leads to repentance, that word goodness means friendship. So here's what God is doing. He's inviting his enemies to be his friends. That's us. We're his enemies. And he's inviting us into a friendship relationship with him. That's stunning. That's amazing. So when I think about the wealth, the wealth of all that I have in him, when I realize who I am, here's what it is. Let me just kind of walk you through this. So I'm, I'm operating, I should operate every day, not in an effort. Like I said here, we live, we work, we serve, not for, but from our identity, from fullness, not a deficit trying to fill an emptiness inside. So, so think about this, think about this. Maybe you haven't thought about it for a while. If, you're, if you know Christ, you should be thinking about it regularly. You have the wealth of his presence by grace through faith in Christ. You have the wealth of his presence. There's nothing better than the presence of God. I think it's the best part of being a Christian. Is having his presence in my life. You have the wealth of his presence. He'll never leave you or forsake you. You have the comfort of his love. Have you ever been beat up by life and, and then you spent some time with the Lord and he just, he began to pour his love into your heart as it says in Romans 5.5. 5. The Holy Spirit began to just pour his love down deep into your heart. And you, were at, and you had those moments where you're just overwhelmed by his love. You had a sense of his love on your heart. Nothing quite like that. You have the wealth of his presence, comfort of his love, the strength of his power. You ever feel like tapping out? Oh, yeah. Woo, I'm out. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And yet supernaturally, I've had God's power and strength help me. Help me to be a better husband, better father, better, better pastor, better leader, just a better person. Sometimes I just want to tap out, especially when it gets really crazy hot like it is. Yeah, right? I mean, and we're just starting the summer, man. We got a couple more months. And I'm just saying, I'm already ready to tap out. 
But we've got his supernatural power. We've got the wealth of his presence, the comfort of his love, the strength of his power. We have the significance of being called his children. Why in the world would I ever be anxious or angry or in despair? I'm a child of God. We're his people. Can you see why that's so critical in this text? Man, you got to start with that. Otherwise, you're heading into, you're operating out of a deficit rather than an abundance. So realize who we are. That's big. That is so big. Now, now you're going to be able to walk this out, out of that fullness, repent of where we are. That's your next fill in the blank. And then he goes on, he says, so humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. So what is repentance? Let's talk about repentance here just a minute. It's a 180, a U-turn. An about face. And so it's turning from sin to the Savior. That's the idea here, repentance. And in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, makes a distinction between worldly, worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly repentance and, and godly repentance. So worldly uh, repentance would be sorrow for the pain this sin has caused me. I call it alligator tears. I sit down with people and they're so sorry for what they've done because of the problems it's brought into their life now. And I go, well, that's, that's not real repentance. And you can cry and you can have tears, but it's, it's a pity party for you. So real repentance and uh, godly grief is sorrow for the pain this sin has caused God in others. Do you hear the difference? See, the one will be short-lived. The first one, worldly grief will be short-lived. Because I've, I've sat down with guys before, they're really sorry for what they did to their wives or whatever, and they had uh, worldly grief and it didn't last. Godly grief will last. And that's what you see in, with King David. Remember King David, Old Testament? He committed adultery with Bathsheba, murdered her husband, betrayed a whole nation. And in his repentance psalm, Psalm 51, he says, against you, you alone have I sinned. And you go, what? No, no, no. You sinned against Bathsheba, her husband, the whole nation. No, no. He understood for him to do those sins, he had to first trample on the love and the wisdom of his God who he sinned against. Does that make sense? So he understood, God, I broke your heart. God, I know that that was a dagger in your heart. Because you see, God has, has given us his, his laws, his word, out of his perfect love and infinite wisdom, knowing how he created us, knowing our weaknesses and strengths. He's saying, this is how I want you to live. Oh, by the way, this also represents my character. And because I'm holy, I want you to be holy. That's not so much a commandment as a promise. I want wholeness for your life. I want success and flourishing in everything I have for you. And so as you live these, but when you take a path outside of my directives, outside of my laws, you're trampling on my perfect love and infinite wisdom. It's a dagger in my heart. When you understand that, you begin to look at sin quite differently. That's the idea here of repentance. And so you can see now this kind of leads into, and I think these are progressive. So repent of where we are. And then he says, humble themselves. Next fill to blank. Humble themselves. What is humility? Humility is not only necessary to enter the kingdom of God, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But to be great in the kingdom of God, Matthew 20, 26 through 27. It's servant leadership. 1 Peter 5, 5, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You do not want God to oppose you. And yet, I, I believe fundamentally that's, that's our, our biggest problem 
is, is it, it's actually rooted. Now, if you go back to Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3, this is kind of how sin works in our lives to understand the kind of the dynamics of sin. It starts with unbelief. I already mentioned it. The enemy begins to tell us, you're not going to be happy if you obey God. You're going to be happy having a relationship with the creator of the universe. He's holding out on you anyway. He doesn't actually have your best interest at heart. So unbelief leads to pride. Like, I'm smarter than God. I think I can do this on my own. I can find meaning, hope, and happiness apart from him. That's called pride. And then that pride leads to immediately idolatry. Because everybody's going to serve somebody. Even atheists are serving somebody. They're probably serving themselves, maybe. Or they're serving somebody. They're getting their sense of meaning, hope, and happiness from someone or something. In the top ten list, the Ten Commandments... When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, there's no third option. You're either going to serve the one true and living God or you're going to serve a counterfeit God because that's the only way that we can function. We have to have a God. He created us in such a way for him to be at the center of our life and if we reject him, we will replace him with another God. We'll replace him with another God. So this is the dynamics of sin working in our life. Unbelief, pride, idolatry. So that's what we're having to look at in our own lives and as it relates to repentance. So we've got to humble ourselves. So what's the opposite of humility? It would be pride. And so there would be self-righteousness in our lives, being your own savior, or self-will, being your own boss, or self-centeredness, living for your own glory. So that's all pride. And here's what I, I don't really understand, and I, fall, I find myself falling prey to this, just like anybody else. A proud Christian, an arrogant Christian, is an oxymoron. Yep. I don't know how you can look at the cross and not come away with the understanding that, oh my goodness, I, am, I was so lost, or I'm so lost. I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. There was no other way. There's no other way that you could be reconciled to the Father except that Jesus died for you. That's how lost you are. And yet when you look at the cross, you ought to be able to, it should dawn on you say, not only am I terribly lost, but I'm unbelievably loved. He loved me so much he wanted to die for me. So the cross is indispensable. There's no other way that you can be reconciled to God. You're shot. It's over. You're done. You're headed for an eternity apart from Christ. That's the bottom line. That's what the Bible teaches. It's very clear. You are doomed for all eternity. And there's no other way except through Jesus Christ. No other way. That's the stark reality of what the Bible teaches. And so there's, you're that lost, but you're that loved at the same time. And that has a way of humbling you. You are humble. There's no self-righteousness, no self-will, no self-centeredness. Well, it does creep in. Because what happens is that oftentimes, and this is what I found, is that we glory in our commitment to Christ rather much more than we glory in Christ. We look, hey, look what I've done. Look what I'm doing. Look what, how great I am. No, that's not about you. You're only doing those things because you're responding to all that he's done for you. Otherwise, that's self-righteousness. That's Phariseeism. And so, humility is realizing how little you deserve and how much you've received in God. In fact, how many, uh, a show of hands, would say that you're like me, 
that when you committed your life to Christ, all your sins didn't immediately go away? You still struggle with issues in your life? Show of hands, show of hands. Okay, look around. Make sure that everybody's hand is up, okay? Not everybody's raising their hands here, so we'll, let's, let's snap them into reality here, okay? You're in denial, okay? I mean, I, I wish that would happen. I committed my life to Christ, and everything is just like perfect. I'm like perfect in every way, man. I, I tried to pull that on my wife our first decade of marriage, and it didn't work, okay? It's called self-righteousness. It's called holier-than-thou. It's called Phariseeism. Oh, boy, it didn't work. It didn't go over well. I about crashed my marriage because of that self-righteousness. She goes, no, I live with you, dude. I know everything about you. You're as messed up as I am. And so, so that alone, the, your own personal struggle with sin, even being a Christian, should help you to appreciate the grace of God. That when I blow it, I don't run from him. I run back into his arms because I know that he accepts me and loves me. He doesn't pour condemnation on me. That's from the enemy. He brings conviction. He woos me back into his arms because he wants to free me. He wants to fulfill me. He wants to satisfy me in himself. And so we celebrate grace most joyfully when we've mourned our sin most deeply. That will humble you. Man, I'm desperate for Jesus. I heard a gal this last week it was, uh, that said, man, I don't know how people make it without Jesus. And I said, right on, sister. That's exactly how I feel. And if you don't feel that way, it's because you probably have too much pride in your life and you're out of touch with reality. Seriously. That there should be almost this overwhelming sense, man, I'm desperate for Jesus. I need him. I love him. I want more of him. And I want other people to know him too. Here's the next one. So humility, this kind of humility is going to lead to prayer. You're going to pray. So if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, so you're in touch with reality, you're desperate for Jesus, guess what? If you're, if you're there, you're going to pray. Amen. Prayerlessness comes from our pridefulness. We don't pray much because we don't really think we need it. That's, that's the truth. Ah, uh, I don't need to pray. Wait, 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 wait. No, <laughs> you're desperate for it. You just don't know it. But if you had a hint of what you could experience in prayer, fellowship with the creator, the wealth of his presence, oh my goodness, that alone would be enough to get you on your knees regularly. And not just spend time with him, but to be able to walk with him throughout the day. My favorite part of my day is spending time with my Savior. I know that sounds crazy if you've never experienced that before. I'm telling you, it's, I, I think it's the best part of the Christian life. Interacting with God, communion with God. And see, prayer is not uh, monologue, it's dialogue. It's two-way conversation, communion, interaction with God. I'm telling you, he speaks to my heart. He can speak to your heart too. He's, al he's alive, he's real. We interact with the eternal God. We're not just saying our prayers. Don't just say your prayers and read your Bible. Have an encounter with God. Get to know him. Let's go through the motions, check the box. Whoop, did that. Come on. Know God. Experience God in your life. You're missing out on the very best of the Christian life, interacting with God. And of course, in that interaction, you're going to bring the needs of the nation to him. And, and so... Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. I know that in Luke particularly, it gives us this idea that the disciples were watching Jesus interact with the Father and they were like, oh, 
teach us how to do that. We want to know how to connect with the Father like that. And he teaches them how to pray. You guys know what prayer he taught them? It's called the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Kind of walks them through this process. You can also find that prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Here's what's so fascinating about prayer. This is what keeps me on my knees. It's not only this intimacy and fellowship that I have with God, is this thing right here. Prayer makes things happen that otherwise wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. That's what the Bible teaches. I know that as I interact with God, he hears me and he's responding to my prayers. And many times I get a chance to have a front row seat to see him do that in people's lives. And they'll come to me and they'll say, man, you can't believe what God's doing. I go, yeah, I can. And uh, yeah, because I've been praying for you, believe me. And, I'm, and now you're beginning to see more clearly. I think, oh, that's wonderful. That's amazing. Prayer makes things happen that otherwise wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. God governs the world through the prayers of his people. Oh yeah? Really, Pastor Ray? Prove that. Okay, thank you for asking that. Here it is, James 4.2. We have not because we ask not. So we, so we do without because we're not coming to him. It tells us in 5.16 of James, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. He's just saying, things are happening. When you talk to me about the stuff on this planet, I'm working. I'm doing things. I'm going to respond to your prayers because that's how much I love you. Amen. So Matthew 6.20, in part of the uh, Lord's Prayer, when he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. You guys understand what he's saying there? I love that part of the prayer. In essence, what you're doing, you know, when you walk into a dark room, you don't curse the darkness. What do you do? Turn on the light. Turn on the light. You hit the light switch. That's turning on the light. Amen. You don't curse the darkness. You walk and you're going about your day and you see hatefulness and you're inviting God's kingdom. God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. God, there's so much hatefulness right here in my work area. Lord, I want you to invade it with your love and your presence and your peace right now. And what happens? I believe that the presence of God begins to force out the work of darkness in our lives. I do that regularly and with the people's lives all around me. I mean, think about that. In the midst of battle, in the midst of difficulties, your kingdom come, your will be done in this circumstance, in these people's lives, in what's going on here. There's something that's happening as a result of that. That's why he told us to pray like this. Invite his presence into the situation. Light dispels darkness. Love dispels hatefulness. Joy overcomes hopelessness. Peace brings an end to that conflict. Many times I've seen that happen as I invite his presence. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, I can do more than pray after I've prayed, but I really can't do more than pray until I've prayed. Now listen to this prayer. This is what he says, how we should be praying for our nation. Right here, it's found in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 4. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. So I'm, I'm praying for anybody and everybody. You get close to me, I'm praying for you, okay? So you get around me, I'm praying for anybody and everybody I come in contact with. I got quite a list. And so that's what he's saying here. And then he says, for kings and all who are in high positions. So here's what I do in my prayers every morning. I pray for our city, state, and national political leaders and spiritual leaders. And I even pray for Biden administration. And I'm telling you, they need a lot of help, to say the least. They need a ton of help. 
And so, I'm, so I, this, that's part of my prayer. It's part of my prayer. As I'm working through intercessory prayer. And I start with my own family. And then I work out in concentric circles. And eventually get to the city, state, nation. And then I work beyond that. But I, I focus on that. And, and that's right here. He's telling us, For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. I see and hear so much complaining about our government. Imagine if we complained less and prayed more. And in fact, every time you were tempted to complain, you turned that into a prayer. Oh my goodness, can you imagine what God would do as a result of that? I think God would do some pretty amazing things, but I think we spend more time complaining than we do praying. And I think that's part of the challenge here. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, will pray. By the way, I'm so thankful for that prayer group that meets every Sunday night at 6 o'clock right here in our foyer. Praise God for what you guys do. Those of you that are committed to praying regularly, I think you've paved the way for much of the success that we see happening right here at Desert Breeze. Many people's lives that are being touched. And I know we do more than just pray there, but we pray in our small groups. I pray for the church regularly. We pray in our staff meetings weekly for this church and the people of this church. So thank you guys for what you do in your prayer. And so, humble themselves, pray, seek my face. Seek my face. Turn to the person next to you and see if they know the difference between seeking his face versus seeking his hand. Seeking his face versus seeking his hand. What's the difference between the two? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. So you guys getting that down? So what is the difference between the two? How many were thinking along the lines that we seek his hand, we're trying to get from him? Seeking his face is more about being with him? If you were thinking along those lines, you're, you're pretty accurate. In fact, the Hebrew word for face in the Old Testament is often translated presence. So when we seek his face, we're seeking his presence. When we seek the face of God, we are seeking his presence. It's desiring to know his character and his presence more than anything we ever get from him. We just love being with him. So if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, you just love spending time with him. That's what it means. I love uh, Psalm 27.4. David runs the full gamut of nightmares in his life. He says, even if hundreds of thousands of enemies are outside of me, that's outside of his life. And then he compares that to the, the other spectrum. The other end of the spectrum would be, my own mom and dad reject me or abandon me. If those kind of things are happening, if I had this one thing, I know that I could face all the nightmares in my life. That's basically what he's saying. If I had this one thing, anybody know what that one thing is? He says, one thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What is he asking for there? He's asking, he's seeking the face of God. To bask in his love heals and satisfies like nothing else. Do you hear me? To seek his face 
to interact with God, to have an intimate relationship with him, to bask in his love heals and satisfies like nothing else. The, the, at the end of, oftentimes when we do communion, we've got communion going on this weekend, but at the end of the communion, I'll give you a blessing. And oftentimes, I'll, I'll mix it up a little bit. But for instance, this weekend, I'm going to give the blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. What does that mean? That means that you would be able to see more clearly than ever the only eyes in the universe that matter, the only one that really counts, loves you, adores you, thinks the world of you. When was the last time you had that overwhelming sense that you were looking into the very face of God, that he hears you and he delights in you and no one loves you like he loves you? That's the idea of seeking his face. I know it's been a while because your behavior and how you act and how you respond to the circumstances of life uh, betrays you. Because if you had that, if you had had that experience, it's going to change the way that you do life and how you interact with others. And you're going to want anybody and everybody to experience what you're experiencing. But if you don't, it's because you're probably not experiencing that. To seek his face, to know that. I mean, can you imagine? I know I'm getting down. uh, I don't know where the finish line is for me. Could be in a, another month, two months, could be next year, whatever. But I'm, I'm getting closer to the finish line, much closer than ever before, obviously. You to, yeah, of course. Yeah, and, and, but some of you, it, you, you got a ways, okay? Some of you are a little further down the road than me, okay? I'm just telling you, okay? Oh, yeah? But here's often what I do is I think about what it would be like. I imagine what it would be like when I take my last breath on earth. I take my first breath in heaven and I look into the eyes of the one who would rather die than to live all eternity without me. That he would die for me. That he would... And the only thing that's going to be man-made in heaven will be those scars on his hands and his feet. Did you know that? And I'll be reminded of, of the costliness of that. That was indispensable and terribly costly what he did for me. And I think that you can get glimpses of that even right now. That when you spend time with him, as you're studying his word, as you're praying, you get these glimpses of this, of how much he delights in you and you begin to experience his love. See, this idea that let his face shine on you, this is a blessing to find your deepest pleasure in God and feel his deep pleasure in you. And then turn from your wicked ways. By the way, these are progressive. So if you humble yourself, you pray, you seek his face, guess what? You're going to turn from your wicked ways. Because you don't want to mess up this relationship with God. You have so much in him. You're going to go up. Oh, what do I got to get rid of in my life? Of course I'm going to get rid of that because I want more of him. So you're going to turn from your wicked ways. Let me give you what I think is kind of a commentary of our culture currently. And this is the fruit. And then I'll share with you the root of it. You kind of know that. But Second Peter... Uh, I'm sorry. Second Timothy chapter 3 verses 2 through 5. It says this. But understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Sound familiar? That's our culture. Here's the root. That's the fruit. Here's the root. That's the behavior. Here's the beliefs. Jeremiah 2.13. 
For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns. Anybody know what a cistern is? Show, show of hands, anybody? Okay, you guys, okay. I had somebody last night go, you might want to tell them what a cistern is. Is that like a brethren? No. Uh, it's, no, it's, it's a reservoir for water storage, okay. You guys, everybody knows now, okay. So reservoir for water storage. They have hewed out, they've dug out reservoirs for water storage, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So he's making this contrast here. This is what he's saying, is that sin is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water, Christ, for broken cisterns, anything other than Christ that can hold no water. It's fleeting. It's fleeting. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. So we sin because we want something more than friendship with God. So that behavior that I just mentioned in 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5, that's symptomatic. That's the behavior of a belief that you're trying to find your happiness in something other than God. And that's our culture. And so as I spend time with the Lord, and this is what you need to do too. Make sure you're doing this. Otherwise, you're not really interacting with him. He will reveal to you your besetting sins. Those are those sins that are chronic in your life. He will bring those to your attention and help you to keep from acting out on those sins. But you've got to start dealing with them. Besetting sins are those things you continually struggle with and have weakness toward. So let me ask you this question. What are those besetting sins? What are those things in your life that are competing for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from Christ? What are those things that you love more than Jesus Christ? Those are your besetting sins. And they're going to drag you away from Christ. They're going to create all kinds of problems in your life. So we sin because it offers a promise of happiness. Remember in, in Psalm 51, 12, when, uh, when David said, he said to me, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now listen to me. You got to get this. He didn't sin and then lose the joy of his salvation. He lost the joy of his salvation, then he sinned. The fight against sin is the fight to keep your heart from growing cold toward God. To have your heart hot for God. Passion for him. Loving him more than you love anything else. And if you're not aware of those things that are competing for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections, you're doomed. The enemy's got a hold of you and he's going to lead you astray. He's got you duped. Nothing, there's no greater meaning, hope, and happiness than what can be found in Jesus Christ. So the promise of sin enslaves us until we believe that Christ is more desirable and satisfying than sin. So the power of sin's promise is always broken by the power of God's promise. What he offers is better by far. Okay, so let's wrap this up because we're going to take some communion here this morning. But here's the promise, promise for healing for our nation. Restoration will come from God. Let me give you the next uh, fill in the blanks. I will hear from heaven. He will hear us from heaven. And he'll, he'll reveal our besetting sins. And he'll help us to make those course corrections. 
And he will forgive our sins. By the way, he never holds our sins against us. There is therefore now no condemnation against those that are in Christ Jesus. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And he will heal our land. A couple thoughts here. Most of us are familiar with Jeremiah 29.11. You guys familiar with Jeremiah 29.11? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. By the way, that was written to people that were in exile. Sometimes I feel like we're in exile in this foreign land called America. It is changing so fast. But in our exile, this is what God is saying. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. By the way, if you will seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. 29, 13. A few verses after that. But most people don't know the, the, the verse that's way before that. Jeremiah 29, 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So let me give you, seek the welfare of the city. I've got one, two, three, four, five insights. And this is what we need to do to seek the welfare of our city and of our nation. Honor and hold accountable those who are in public office. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God. Honor those that are in public office. There's so much dishonor going on right now toward those that are in public office. That should not be coming from Christians. We honor, we hold them accountable. It's important. Okay, I, I could probably elaborate on each one of these. I better not. Okay. <laughs> Obey the government unless they compel you to disobey God's word. Next one. It is an act of loving our neighbor to vote for politicians and laws that promote biblical values. When we live, when we have a nation that lives according to biblical values, this place will flourish. I'm just telling you. Because that's God's heart for us. Avoid partisan politics, blind adherence to a particular party, and stand up for the truth, but do it with gentleness and respect. Here's the last one. Help people to see through our proclamation and demonstration that the gospel is the good news for all aspects of our life, and that includes our politics. It's going to change your politics. Show people that the gospel gives them something they have been looking for their whole life. It gives us a meaning, hope, and happiness that cannot be found anyplace else on this planet. Now, we've got a couple that's been working hard, that's gathering a group within our church. This is one of many battlefronts here at Desert Breeze, and it's Warren and Andrea Bowden. They're sitting right back there. They're doing a fantastic job in helping us in this area. They lead Patriots for Christ Life Group. They have a biblical citizenship class. If you haven't taken that class yet, they're just finishing up one. They'll be starting up another one in August. And then, uh, and then don't forget Freedom, uh, fa Faith, Family, and Freedom Town Square. Next, uh, the next one is July the 11th, 6 to 8, right here on the campus. And they're going to be talking about the state of education, how we can get involved in that process. A lot of stuff going on here. If you need more information about that, talk to them or call the church office and we will help you. Let's pray. Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. Father God, we are so very blessed in, in many ways as a nation, and yet at the same time, we are broken and in desperate need of healing. And so we have become very complacent spiritually as a nation, and our compromise has brought many consequences. We ask for a covenant renewal, an awakening, a revival among your people. I pray, Lord, this morning that those that are here that have never made a confession of faith in you, that they would acknowledge their sin, that they would believe that Christ died on the cross for their sins, and they would confess you as Savior and Lord. 
We pray that nominal Christians would get saved, sleepy Christians would wake up, and that your church here at Desert Breeze and throughout the city, state, and nation would become more beautiful, attracting those who are hard to reach to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We got three stations, actually four. This is a gluten-free station if you need that right here in front of me. Come up here and grab the double cups. Take them back to your seat. I'll walk us through the process here. Three stations. Thank you. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, so it gives us a warning, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let the person examine himself then and so eat and drink and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. He's actually talking about as believers that God will discipline us. And so what does that mean in an unworthy manner? It means you don't want to do this, what we're doing right now, ritualistically, indifferently, or with an unrepentant or an unforgiving heart, that if God has identified a besetting sin, something that you're struggling with, you need to bring it to him. And if you have issues with someone else in your life, with some unforgiveness and bitterness, you need to bring that to him. doesn't mean you're going to immediately, all of a sudden, forgive them, but you're going to work through that process. Forgiveness is a process. And so you're just willing to be open with him. So we're talking about an authentic relationship with God. He, he does deal with us. He loves us. He intera- we can interact with him. And so let's do that. Let's just take a moment here and uh, allow God to speak to our hearts. So Jesus, you are the bread of life. Whoever, whoever comes to you will never go hungry. Whoever believes in you shall never thirst. We take the Lord's Supper now in reverent obedience. We don't want to receive it in an unworthy, in an unworthy way. So we, uh, we come in repentance and faith. Forgive us of our sins. As we forgive those who have sinned against us. May our partaking of this proclaim your saving death and our, our desperate need of it. We celebrate your presence in our midst, bringing us into communion with you and one another and in anticipation of the day when we will eat and drink with you forever. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you, you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Next weekend, Jonah, you can't outrun God's grace. Jonah chapter 1. We're going to talk about rebellion, running from God, what that looks like. I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders and leaders. If you, if you are new, we'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you've got any questions, we'd love to answer those questions for you. Here's, uh, here's my blessing for you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace unlike you've ever experienced before. In Jesus' name and everyone said. Amen.
Amen. Love you guys.